The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn. Welcome to Food Sleuth Radio. I'm a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And joining me today, I'm thrilled to have Sharon Astick, who is a writer, a prolific blogger, book author, farmer, and mother. And Sharon, I have two of your books here in front of me. The one that I really want to focus on is called A Nation of Farmers, Defeating the Food Crisis on American Soil. But you're joining us all the way from Knox, New York, which is just outside of Albany. So thank you for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'll tell you, how I first found out about you was I was at my local farmer's market, and a gentleman who works in 4-H tapped me on the shoulder and said, do you know about Sharon Astic? And I said, no, tell me about her. And he recommended your blog to me, and one thing led to another, and lo and behold, I'm sitting here with A Nation of Farmers and another book, which I like just as much, called Independence Days, A Guide to Sustainable Food Storage and Preservation. But first I should ask you, you know, you've got a BA in history and literature from Brandeis University, a master's degree in literature from Boston College, and you completed most of the work for your PhD in early modern literature. How the heck did you get interested in food? Yeah, that is a really good question because there weren't a lot of classes on Shakespeare curriculum on food. I've always been really interested in food. I grew up in a family where people cooked and ate, and so even when I, you know, when I was a college student and a graduate student, I wanted to eat good food, and I found that I couldn't afford to buy it, so I started growing some of it myself. So even in urban apartments, I had balcony gardens and was growing food, and it really changed when my husband and I had our first child. Was we really felt like we needed better food systems. We couldn't afford to necessarily eat the kinds of food that we wanted to, and it wasn't always available to us, and that we really needed to change our lives. So we we moved. Um, my husband's grandparents were getting elderly and needed some help, and we moved in with them, and we started growing garden. And sort of strangely out of this came this practice of we, we had more than we needed after even the first year. And so we started growing food for other people. We started a CSA and expanded into livestock and now we're farmers. It just sort of happened. Well, I have to ask you, I absolutely love A Nation of Farmers because it touches on so many issues that are so close to my heart. In your introduction, you talk about the big lie Can you describe that for our listeners? My co-author and I, um, Aaron Newton, the big law is really this question, this thing that we, I think we say to ourselves all the time, which is that people won't change. I think that we always know, seem, feel like we know that. We know for sure that people won't do things that are really, really different and either until they're made to or they just won't. It's just not possible. And I think that puts a lot of inertia into our situation. And I think it's a really painful inertia because as long as we believe that people won't do the right thing just because it's the right thing, we're stuck with, okay, what's the politically possible thing? What's the easy thing? And the reality is I 
think looking back over human history, and this is one of those places where my prior training in history and literature are of value to me, you get to see that human beings have done a lot of really strange things over the course of history. They've lived in really radically different ways in almost every conceivable way you can imagine. And people have really changed their way of life radically because of political beliefs, because of religious beliefs, because of a conviction that the things that they were doing was wrong. So it was almost impossible, for example, to imagine in 1850 that 25 years later there would be no slaves in the United States. I mean, it was simply impossible to imagine that. Right. Well, you have this great line here about joining with others who live honorably, doing not what is easy, but what is right. Yeah, for us, it's for both of us, I think it's really important that I think that's what people want to do. I mean, I see people around me going out of their way to figure out what is the moral and ethical thing to do and spending a lot of time being preoccupied with that. And in fact, I think a lot of us try and do the moral and ethical thing even when it isn't easy, and we're not given an enormous amount of encouragement Mm -hmm. by our society to do that sometimes. So I guess that's something that really inspires me, is that there are so many people out there who really do want to do what's right. Well, in the beginning and interspersed throughout your chapters of this book, you have quotes that I I personally love quotations that make me think and inspire me to do the right thing. And I love the quote that you have here, under the train goes off the rails. It's a Naomi Wolf quote, and she says, I am writing because we have an emergency. And sometimes I think that we should have sirens going off telling us, hey, folks, we've got an emergency here. And I think you and I probably both recognize that we are closer to famine than we might want to realize. I think that's exactly right. I mean, it really is frightening to do the kind of research that we had to do in order to write this book into the world food system. Right now, there are more hungry people, more starving people than there have ever been in human history. There are more than a billion of them. Um, there also is more hungry in the developed, hunger in the, in the developed world than there has ever been. For example, one out of every nine Americans now uses food, food stamps, the highest in the rate in the program's history. One out of every five American children went hungry last year at some point. And what we're experiencing is a rapid rise in both sort of lack of nutrition among low-income people who can't always get enough food, and when they can get it, it's not very nutritious, and real and deep hunger in around the world. Mm. What happened to us? Wow, that's a big question. A lot of things happened to us. I mean, I think one of the things that happened is, as a society, we shifted away from living on what some people would call a solar economy and in a cyclical way. I mean, we shifted as a society from having to think about food. I mean, you think going back historically, about one-third of the world's population was involved directly in food production some level. That means about a third of the world's population in the pre-modern era were farmers. There's about 2% of the American population as farmers, a little less than that, actually. Mm. So we had a dramatic shift from the number of people who have to think about food. And... It's, if you look at the developing world, you'll see about half the population is involved in food at some level. Either they grow gardens or they are farmers or they sell food as a, li- as a part of their living. So we've shifted away from a world where food is just an everyday basic part of your economy and your daily life to a world where it's not. And I think we lost track of how important food is. Indeed. 
You know, something else you have, you state very early on in this book is that oil has replaced people in industrial agriculture, and now people have to come back and replace the oil. And that takes a whole shift in thinking, doesn't it? It really does, and it's one that I think is hard for a lot of Americans to grasp, is the degree to which the fact that we're being fed by this tiny percentage of our population is due to fossil fuels and to fossil fuels that we are largely importing from other places, from places that are often hostile to us, and from fossil fuels that are, are of course, responsible for about agricultural impacts are responsible for about a third of all climate change gases. And so we're paying a very high price for replacing human beings with oil. And I think when people think about the idea of, well, we can't replace people back into the system, and they sort of imagine themselves like the peasants wallowing in the muck in Monty Python and the Holy Grail or some awful scenario of endless stoop labor, you know, weeding fields. But one of the things we try to do is try and demystify the idea that you have to be involved in your food system being a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people will say, well, you know, people just don't want to work that hard anymore, that farming is really difficult and people don't want to go back. They like their comfortable food that they don't maybe think so much about. Well, that's true. I mean, I have a couple of responses to that. The first one is that Juliet Shore, who's a professor at Harvard. I love her. Yeah, she's wonderful. Um, wrote this book called The Overworked American, mm-hmm. where she documents that essentially, other than 19th century factory workers, we are the most overworked people in history. Yeah. So when you say we don't want to work that hard, it's worth noting that, say, a serf in um, 11th century Britain worked fewer hours than most of your listeners do. And that's, I think, a really important thing to notice is that I'm not minimizing the amount of physical work that's involved in farming. But I also, for example, am a writer, and I know my back hurts more after a day spent in front of the computer than it does after a day spent outside working in my garden or with my livestock. You're so right. So I think, I think one of it is we have this sort of strange perception of what hard work is. The other thing is saying that people need to be get involved with their food system doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's going to be a food full-time farmer. And in fact, given the way agriculture is structured right now, given the way it pays, People really can't be. We can't have an entire nation full of full-time farmers. That's not going to happen. So realistically, a lot of what we're advocating at this stage is for people to begin producing some portion of their food as a sort of pleasurable activity. I mean, there are millions of leisure gardeners out there who think, this is fun, and there's no reason you shouldn't grow some food along with your flowers. Well, I noticed that one of the people you thank in your book is Rose Hayden Smith, who is a dear friend of mine, and I interviewed her several weeks ago. But Rose and you both bring back the beautiful posters from the Victory Garden era, and you really call upon people to become reacquainted with that philosophy of, as you say, growing some of your own food as a almost a patriotic responsibility. It's really astonishing to think about how much was done during the Victory Garden era. In 1944, Victory Gardens in the United States grew as much produce as was grown on all the produce farms in the United States. So basically, half of the vegetables people were eating were grown in Victory, that were available to people to eat were grown in Victory Gardens in the United States. So it's really astonishing to realize that... One small garden seems like, oh, it can't be that big a deal, but the aggregate of people getting involved in the food system is enormous. The power of sort of a lot of little gardens is just as great as a bunch of big farms. 
Right. And so rewarding. And the taste just can't be beat. Well, and that's the other thing. I mean, you know, it would be easy to think that, you know, we, Aaron and I spend a lot of time writing about the problems that face us, and it'd be easy to say we grow food, um, we're both farmers, that we grow food because we want to save the world or because we're so concerned about something. But really, a lot of it has to do with the quality of the food. I mean, it's simply astonishing how different the flavor is. And it's just, it's food money can't buy. You can get very, very close at your farmer's market. But you simply can't walk into a supermarket and duplicate those flavors. I agree. In your chapter, Ring the Bell, you've got a quote from Thomas Jefferson. You headed up with the statement, what the heck is a kohlrabi and what do I do with it anyway? Followed by Thomas Jefferson, who says, the greatest service which can be rendered any country is to add a useful plant to its culture. And I fear that we are losing biodiversity so quickly that we are losing the very nutrients that can help keep us well. I think you're absolutely right, and it is a very disturbing thing. And I think part of it is we have been living on a very, very basic diet. Hope Shand, who's an anthropologist and writer, has a wonderful quote that I love where she says, if you read documentation about food, you read about the sort of three or four main staple crops that people use. But if you look into people's cooking pots around the world, you will see that we use thousands of plants and hundreds of different animals in our cooking pots. And it's really astonishing, I think, to realize how many food-producing plants there are and how little we know about them. I mean, we really eat a very small number of vegetable and fruits routinely in the United States. Mm -hmm. And we often disregard some of the most nutritious foods, which are the the weeds around us. Right. Right. Eating some of the wild Exactly. And a lot of times those foods are more nutritious. They're, they're there for us. You know, there's a wonderful food writer named Robin Wheeler who writes in her book about going to China. And, you know, she asks somebody in China, how do you keep your bamboo so neat, you know, the way it is? How do you keep it from running all over? And she says, well, it's very easy. Everybody knows how delicious bamboo shoots are. So the moment one pokes its head out of the ground, somebody cuts it off and takes it home. Oh. And you know, and Robin Wheeler says, oh, where I'm in Canada, we cut the bamboo da- shoots down and throw them in on the compost pile and then go buy bamboo shoots in a can. <laughs> right, right. Oh, if you're just joining us, we are having a wonderful conversation with Sharon Astick, who is a brilliant writer, blogger, prolific blogger, prolific writer, and a farmer and a mother based in Knox, New York, which is just outside of Albany. And we are talking about our food system. I'm sitting here with two of Sharon's, two of two out of three of Sharon's books, Independence Days, A Guide to Sustainable Food Storage and Preservation, and one of my favorites, which will become probably a coffee table book called A Nation of Farmers, Defeating the Food Crisis on American Soil. Sharon, you talk about here the limits of the Green Revolution, and I think it's very important, especially with your interest in energy as well and, and bringing energy into this big picture of food and hunger, that, you know, we, we can thank the food revolution for, yes, increasing food production with synthetic fertilizers and pesticides, but we still have all this hunger. And you have a great quote from one of, our, one of the people we admire so much, Vandana Shiva, and she says, The seed is starting to take shape as the site and symbol of freedom in the age of manipulation and monopoly of life. The seed is not big and powerful, 
but can become alive as a sign of resistance and creativity in the smallest of huts or gardens and the poorest of families. In smallness lies power. Yeah, and I think this is exactly right. I mean, a lot of us feel like we are, I think, powerless in the Mm. face of our food system. You know, we buy the food that's there. We're, you know, we're a little mystified about how to deal with it. We're not always sure what to do with these things. And I think there's something enormously powerful about growing your own because you're no longer dependent on corporations, on other people in whole ways. You've sort of shaken off these sort of chains of obligation to people who you might not approve of, to companies and things that we, we don't really approve of. By, simply by growing some of your own food. It's really, really remarkable. I agree with you. I think it's enormously liberating. And my children are grown now, but I, I told them when they were young to learn to cook for themselves because if they didn't, they would have to depend on someone else to, to feed them. And feeding ourselves seems like the most basic of human needs. And we know, for example, that people experience hunger because they don't know how to feed themselves, that you know, people buy higher-cost processed foods because they don't know how to cook lower-cost staple foods. And it's, it's a very frustrating and difficult battle to wage, as I, obviously you know. Mm-hmm. You, know you mentioned that you had had a CSA for a while, and I think you had, when we spoke yesterday, you told me, I think you had about 20 families. Yes, we did. What did you learn from them? Well, let's see. One of the biggest things I learned was how interested people were in food, but how much they really need recipes. Um, it sort of it was interesting to me because my feeling is that if you get a vegetable you don't recognize, you might as well stir fry it because everything tastes fine stir fried. But people would really say to me, "I need a recipe to work with this. I need to know how to use fava beans, or I need to know how to use kohlrabi, or I need to know how to use sweet potatoes." So one of the things I really learned was that people are more than willing to try things. In fact, I was really surprised. You know, we asked people what the things they wanted most after their first year were, what did they want more of that they hadn't gotten. And like three or four people were, said fava beans. And I'm, you know, and these are people who called me up and said, what on earth are these weird things? You know, but it really is important that people are very intimidated by food. They don't know how to deal with The other thing is we don't have any tradition at this point of putting food away. So I would send people a large number of potatoes and cabbages. And the nice thing is those things keep for quite a while. And people would send them, but you sent me enough potatoes for a month. And I'm like, well, yes, but the CSA is ending soon and you'll have potatoes for a month. But they, you know, people just didn't know what to do with that. I had a friend say that he sent home a big harvest of garlic in his CSA baskets one year. And people called up and said, this is too much garlic. He says, not if you dole it out all winter. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. It's so fascinating. You know, when we had our, a brief conversation yesterday, I shared with you, you know, my history being from home economics. And it wasn't that long ago, just a couple of decades, that people were relying on their extension offices for instruction on how to store potatoes and how to keep pumpkins and, and winter squash throughout the season. And we, you're so right. We have lost that skill because somehow it didn't become fashionable, if you will. Have you discovered that as well? I have, and that's actually why I wrote Independence Days. It was sort of an offshoot of a nation of farmers was, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about what we needed to do in order to change the food system. And I sort of was driven after that to offer people more concrete suggestions for how can you begin this sort of basic thing of maybe putting food 
buy when it's abundant so that you have some when times get difficult. Because there are so many people right now who are really struggling, and it just felt like such a necessary skill set that we've lost somewhere along the way, as you say. Isn't it interesting that it just doesn't take that long? It didn't take that long for us to lose a nation of farmers. It didn't take that long for us to lose a nation of cooks and of food storers. And now here we are, and you are calling us back. And on towards the end of your book, you say, keep your hand on the plow, transitional moments. And you, you have a quote from Howard Ruff that says, it wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. I take it to mean that you say we better get going right now because the worst is coming. I think that's true on some, at least some level. I mean, I don't know what the exact future will be, but I think it's really important that we start building food systems that are local, that aren't totally fossil fuel dependent, that are climate conscious and that are, you know, because our soil should be capturing carbon from the atmosphere. It shouldn't be releasing it. Our agricultural products projects can actually help us reduce the amount of carbon that's going into the atmosphere rather than being responsible for so much of our carbon gases. So, yes, we need to change our agriculture in really dramatic ways really quickly. And I also just want to say one more thing about home economics. I think one of the things is that's so important about this this sort of food thing and how we lost this so fast was I think there's an underlying contempt for the things that are traditionally associated with women's work before women went into the workforce. I think that there were always a con- there always was a contempt, you know, on some level for women's work. And when women started going out into professional world, they sort of bought the idea that that stuff wasn't really any important anymore. And it's frustrating to me, I think, because I think it is so enormously important. It's frustrating to me, too. I almost think that we need a whole new revolution of home economics lovers and appreciators because when you think about the different units that are under the home economics umbrella, you know, rearing a child with kindness and love and positive discipline, that's one of the one of the divisions in home economics. Family budgeting. You know, would we see a nation of credit card holders and so much debt if all of us had had studied wise financial budgeting? And then, of course, food nutrition. And look at what's happened. I look at, at children, of course, and have been looking at childhood obesity for so long. But when, when we have to rely on a fast food restaurant to feed our family with many more calories, many more fat grams, many more calories from sugar, uh, is that really in our family's best interest? And I think those sort of basic and, I mean, and homely, and I say that not in the insulting sense, but literally home-related skills are things that nobody's doing. You know, women went into the workforce, and it's perfectly reasonable to say they don't have the time to do them all by themselves. But nobody took them up. Either we stopped doing them all together, we stopped being careful with our money, we stopped putting up food, we stopped repairing things and started just throwing them out. Or we hired low-wage workers to do them, and they didn't get done at the same with the same degree of quality. They were done by people who cared about the kids and the family members they were taking care of. And it's been a really difficult transition, and I think one that has to be revised. And I think our society is suffering the loss of those skills. Absolutely. I mean, I just think how astonishing it is when I go, you know, I did a food preserving workshop with a class of eighth graders, and it was very simple stuff. You know, we made jam and we made sun-dried tomatoes and dried apricots. It was very, very simple. 
And one of the girls said to me, she said, this is the first time I've ever cooked anything. And I said, oh, that's really great. And she says, she says, I wish you'd teach my mom how to cook too. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, that's, it's so different than my experience. Sharon, we just have a couple of minutes left. Unfortunately, I didn't even get to the part of the book that I probably love the most, which are practical suggestions for getting a hundred million new farmers. Uh, fabulous ideas. I'll just, I'll just use that as a little teaser for our listeners, um, to learn more about you. I want to make sure that we leave our listeners with your website. And, uh, the best place to go is, uh, http colon double slash SharonAstic.com and that Sharon and Astic is spelled A-S-T-Y-K or um, alternatively you can go to www.scienceblogs.com and search for Sharon's work there. What would you like to leave our listeners with? I hope that as people listen to this that maybe this will inspire people as they enter the season to do sort of ordinary cooking with somebody else or maybe bring some people that they don't normally sit down and eat with into their home for a loaf of bread and a pot of soup or something very basic. I think this time of year is a tough one for a lot of people who would like to share meals but who are sort of intimidated by the culture that says, oh, this is all supposed to be fancy. You have to take out a second mortgage, you know, practically to afford the foods that go with the season sometimes. People get overwhelmed. They think they have to entertain lavishly. And I really feel like that means a lot of us never actually invite anybody over. We never actually sit down for a cup of tea and cookies with somebody. We never actually eat together with the people in our community. And I think the thing that I'd most like to see is for people to remember that we need ordinary food so that we can have ordinary meals with other people. Oh, that's a wonderful send-off message. Sharon, I want to thank you very much for being with me today. It has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. And I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you, listeners, for being here, and thank you so much, Sharon, for joining us. Thanks for having me.